When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Very powerful speech from the president. Yes. Very powerful and yeah. juxtaposed to what we heard from Putin in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. What a day. Uh, president Biden issuing a rallying cry in Poland saying Kiev stands strong after Russia's invasion. Good morning, everyone. Don and I are here in New York. We're glad you're with us. Caitlin is live in Warsaw, Poland again this morning. Caitlin. Yeah, and a couple of hours from now, Poppy and Don, the president is going to wrap up his final day here in Europe on this trip, his final day here in Warsaw. He's going to meet with the eastern flank of NATO allies. They're known as the Bucharest Nine. The anxieties for those countries have been running high for over a year now, as they have been wondering what Putin will do next and what will happen if Russia is successful in Ukraine. Tested a ballistic missile while President Biden was in Ukraine. Straight ahead... What our brand new CNN reporting uncovered, we are live at the Pentagon. Plus this for you. You've said that unions are contrary to Starbucks vision. Yes. That is Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz talking openly about baristas on the picket line and the push to unionize at hundreds of its stores. Our one-on-one sit-down with him is ahead. But we do begin with President Biden rebuking Russia on the world stage and rallying the NATO alliance as Vladimir Putin's brutal and bloody invasion of Ukraine enters its second year. Today is the final day of President Biden's momentous trip to Eastern Europe. In a few hours, he is set to meet with, as Caitlin said, the Bucharest Nine in Warsaw. Those are the leaders of NATO's eastern flank, countries right on Russia's doorstep. Some of them share a border with Russia, and they have feared that they could become Putin's next target. This meeting comes after a stirring speech from President Biden. He made a vow that Putin will never win in Ukraine, and he condemned Russia's horrific atrocities against Ukrainian civilians. They've targeted civilians with death and destruction, used rape as a weapon of war, stolen Ukrainian children, bombed train stations, maternity hospitals, schools and orphanages. No one, no one can turn away their eyes from the atrocities Russia is committing against the Ukrainian people. It's abhorrent. We have team coverage from all angles, from the Pentagon to Moscow. But first, Caitlin Collins is anchoring live in Warsaw again this morning. Caitlin, quite a speech. 
Yeah, it's been quite a trip. I mean, from the president leaving the White House before dawn to make that secret visit to Kiev to now having his final day here. You know, this trip has all had one theme, and that is the president warning what he said last night, which is that he believes democracy is being tested, that it is at stake here, and that that is why this has such broader implications. And if you're not familiar with the Bucharest Nine, I mean, this is a reason that their anxieties are so much higher than everyone else's, because they are right there on the doorstep of Ukraine, of Poland, of Belarus. And so, therefore, that much closer to Russia. And so they have real concerns about what the outcome of what happens in Ukraine. We've been talking to people here in Poland about that, saying, you know, this is a country that has the lowest gun ownership per capita rate in Europe. Yet they have been so concerned about this that some of them are joining the, the Polish version of the National Guard. They've got these real concerns, given this is just so much closer to home for them. And so the president's going to be meeting with those leaders today. He met with the president of Moldova, that very tiny country. Uh, recently, the Moldovan president said that they had unfoiled or they, they had foiled a plot that their intelligence services had dis discovered that basically Moscow was planning to overthrow their government. So you can see this is a real concern for all of the leaders in this area. That's why it's so important for them to be meeting with President Biden after he issued that warning about what's at stake here. And I think, Poppy and Don, the one thing you also can't ignore is the context of what's happening right now in Russia, which is that China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, is there <clears throat> meeting with President Putin. We're expected to happen shortly. They, he already met with the Russian foreign minister. All of that is in the context of what the president was warning about last night, about who is potentially helping mm -hmm. Russia here, what the world is seeing here, what this message is. And that's why this trip ha has been such a momentous one for President Biden. Yeah, it really has been. All right. Thank you, Caitlin. We have some brand new reporting to get to this morning. Vladimir Putin apparently tried to test launch a nuclear capable missile around the time President Biden was in Ukraine, but it failed. That's what U.S. officials are telling CNN. They say it was a Satan II intercontinental ballistic missile like the one you see right there on your screen. Putin was previously, has previously bragged that it's unstoppable and can strike anywhere in the world. That is, if it can get off the ground. Pentagon correspondent Orrin Lieberman broke this story for us on CNN. Orrin, good morning to you. It appears Putin tried to send a strong message, but it was a giant flop. What can you tell us? Very much so, and good morning, Don. Two U.S. officials tell CNN that Russia carried out a test of its Sarmat ICBM missile, a heavy intercontinental ballistic missile capable of carrying a warhead up to 100 tons and with the range to strike virtually anywhere in the world. But one of the officials tells CNN the test likely failed, and here's why. The test was scheduled to take place just before Russian President Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address on Tuesday. And had it been a success, Putin almost certainly would have mentioned it there. And yet, in the hour 45 minutes speech, there was absolutely no mention of that Sarmat missile, its Western nickname, as you point out, the Satan II missile. U.S. officials do tell CNN that there was proper notification given by Russia to the United States ahead of the missile launch, but the timing here can't be ignored. Right before that speech where Putin was looking for a victory, he didn't get it on the battlefield, perhaps he was looking for it from a successful missile test, and he has bragged about it before. And then Don, as you pointed out right at the beginning, this missile test coming right around President Joe Biden's visit to Ukraine. Orrin, a question for you. Would a successful test have changed the, Russia's, the Russians' decision to suspend participation in the New START program? Don, that's an excellent question, one that's difficult to answer without getting into the mind of Putin. But the answer is 
Probably not. Putin needed some kind of victory, some kind of success. The claim in this speech was, which was effectively on the one-year mark of the war, and he wasn't getting it on the battlefield. So to show that he was taking a step against NATO, against the West, and against the United States, perhaps it is that suspension of participation in the New START treaty. That's what he was looking for, and that was likely going to happen whether or not this test succeeded. Don Lieberman at the Pentagon. Thank you. Let's bring in our senior international correspondent, Fred Plekton. He joins us in Moscow. Fred, good morning to you. Um, first of all, I guess we'll, we'll get to New Start in a moment, but let's just talk about what Moscow is saying, mm -hmm. if anything, about this alleged test failure and obviously the timing there. Yeah, yeah, uh, Poppy, uh, Oren's reporting is actually causing a bit of a stir here in mm. Moscow. In fact, you have Russian officials who are not denying the report, but sort of trying to dismiss it a little bit. The deputy foreign minister, Sergei Ryapkov, he came out and he said, well, basically, it's not even worth commenting on. But then he did launch into a tirade saying that there was a lot of misinformation out there and that you shouldn't believe everything you hear in mass media, especially if it's coming from CNN. He's obviously not our biggest fan, it seems. What we did today, this morning, uh, also, Poppy, is we did ask the spokesman for the Kremlin, Dmitry Peskov, about all this as well. He also said that he couldn't comment on it. He said the only entity here in Russia that could comment on it would be the defense ministry. However, so far, they have not put out anything yet, Poppy. You're also reporting uh, that this morning Russian parliament is already moving along Putin's request to suspend at least their mm. participation in the inspections of the New START treaty, which is all about nuclear weapons and, and nonproliferation. Um, but then Putin walked that back a few hours later yesterday. So where does it stand? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important point. You're absolutely right. First of all, as far as the legal process here in Russia is concerned, you're absolutely right. It's moving along very quickly. Obviously, Vladimir Putin put, put that draft uh, forward okay. yesterday after his speech. And today in Parliament, it has already passed the lower house of Parliament, the Duma, early this morning. Uh, however, you're absolutely right. The Russians did say, and the foreign ministry actually said it again last night as well, they are suspending it. They are not getting rid of that treaty. And it is something that can be reversed, guys. Right. OK, Fred Plekton uh, with the perspective from Moscow. Thanks very much for that reporting. And new this morning, the chief executive of Norfolk Southern defending his company's response to the train derailment that released toxic chemicals in Ohio. The railroad company is facing fierce criticism and multiple lawsuits from residents who were forced from their homes and are now reporting health concerns such as headaches and nausea since the disaster. Sentence Miguel Marquez live in East Palestine, Ohio with more this morning. Good morning to you, sir. What is the CEO saying about the company's response? Yeah, good morning. He is starting to respond. Look, I want to show you a little bit of just how massive this cleanup is. We are in the middle of East Palestine here. This is a creek that runs through it. It is contaminated. This is just one location here where they're doing this as Norfolk Southern is under increasing pressure. A toxic mess left by its derailed train. Now President Joe Biden adding his pressure on Norfolk Southern, following criticism for his response to the crash. On Instagram, Biden wrote Norfolk Southern's imposed payments and cleanup operations are common sense because, quote, this is their mess and they should clean it up. The company is reiterating its commitment to East Palestine residents. From day one, I've, I've made the commitment that Norfolk Southern is going to remediate the site. But still, it is facing accusations of mismanagement like this from Pennsylvania's governor, Josh Shapiro. They chose not to participate in the unified command. They gave us inaccurate information and conflicting modeling data. 
I was at Unified Command, and I can tell you that the governors of Ohio and Pennsylvania, Mayor Conaway, Fire Chief Drabeck, the National Guard, and Norfolk Southern were aligned that the control burn and control release was the safest course of action for the citizens of East Palestine. Governor Shapiro announced a criminal referral to the Attorney General's office over the crash and its fallout. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine also said his Attorney General is reviewing possible legal action against Norfolk Southern. But the train company says it is committed to helping East Palestine for the long haul. We're going to do continuous long-term air and water monitoring. We're going to help the residents of this community recover, and we're going to invest in the long-term health of this community, and we're going to make Norfolk Southern a safe forever. According to its CEO, Norfolk Southern has reimbursed $6.5 million to East Palestine residents so far. This as the company continues to monitor air and water quality there. It says hundreds of tests conducted have come back clean. During a visit to East Palestine, head of the EPA, Michael Regan, said he's confident in the tests. Our data is very solid, and if the homes have been cleared and tested for drinking water, uh, then we trust that data. So we feel really good about that. To prove that, Regan and Governor DeWine drank from the same water sources that are being tested. However, Governor DeWine says more work needs to be done to remove contaminated soil from the area. The soil under the tracks had not been dealt with. Uh, so under the administrator's order, uh, that soil will be removed. So the tracks will have to be taken up and that soil will have to be removed. Despite all these actions and guarantees, East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway says his community is still concerned about overall safety. We need our town cleaned up. We need our residents to feel safe in their homes. That's the number one thing. Uh, your, your home is your sanctuary. If you don't feel safe in your home, then you're never going to feel safe anywhere. Now, coming back out live here, I want to show you, this is about 100 yards from where we are, where they have yet another sort of dam of this material to sort of soak up that toxic material next to the one that we are standing at. Uh, EPA says that they expect Norfolk Southern in the next two days to have that comprehensive plan. It'll need to be signed off on by the EPA and uh, the states of Ohio and Pennsylvania. And all entities now saying they will be here not for weeks, not for months, but for years to clean up this mess. Back to you guys. Miguel, you may have spoken of this, but is this one of the number of scenes like this playing out all over the area? This is everywhere. This is, this is right in the middle of town. There are these sort of cleanup operations where they have uh, hoses pulling the water out, pushing it back in to stir it up uh, and to uh, and capture all the toxins. This is happening throughout the area. All right. Miguel Marquez for us in East Palestine, Ohio. Thank you, Miguel. And straight ahead, we're going to speak with the EPA administrator, Michael Regan. That's next hour. Well, Norfolk Southern is facing real scrutiny after spending $4 billion on stock buybacks last year. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here to explain to us why. Let's, just, let's look at the numbers and help us put sure. them in perspective. Okay, so the operating revenue of this company last year was $12.7 billion. This is a 50-some billion dollar market cap, a big company and a company that was making so much money, it decided to, rather than invest into its business, it bought back shares, 4.23 billion shares last year. And so when it said it would give the community fund 1.2 million, uh, it raised some red flags among folks who said, 
look, this is a powerful, profitable company giving money back to shareholders, and you have the suffering of this uh, of this community. So just the optics there are something that people who've been critical of share buybacks, Poppy, uh, really leapt on. Can you explain, because it's interesting, Wall Street is divided on right. um, share buybacks. For example, the Starbucks CEO, Howard Schultz, we'll hear from him later in the show, stopped their corporate right. share buybacks last year when he came back, stopped a billion dollars of them, saying it's not the right thing for a company, right, to do or for the people in that moment. Can you explain what, what the critics of it sure. say and well, the defense of it? Well, let's say what they are, right? This is when companies use their profit, their excess profit, right, to buy back their own shares on the open market. That cuts the number of shares available, which raises the value of a company's stock. It rewards the shareholders. And critics say these buybacks simply reward shareholders and discourage corporate investment in things like safety and things like worker pay. And you've heard unions say that for some time. Joe Biden has been very, the president has been very critical of stock buybacks in, for example, the oil patch, where they make all this money. Uh, we heard from Sherrod Brown uh, on, on Sunday. Mm -hmm. He is a senator there in Ohio. This is what he said about corporate buybacks. Pamela, this is really the same old story. Uh, corporations do uh, stock buybacks. They do big dividend checks. They lay off workers. Thousands of workers have been laid off from Norfolk Southern. Uh, then they, they, they don't invest in safety rules and safety regulations. And this kind of thing happens. That's why people in East Palestine are so upset. Defense is, these are public companies that need investors, right? Lots of different investors. And you need to reward investors when you can to make sure you have access to that capital and that this is how we run our businesses. So there's this capitalist uh, defense of it, but then there are the optics, I think. This, that, um, is, this is bringing highlight, this is highlighting it, but this is something that you have been discussing. This has been discussed for years about these corporate buybacks oh, yeah, absolutely. Stock buybacks. But this is how Wall Street runs. I mean, this is what runs on corporate buybacks, right? And as soon as you start to have... You know, stability and profits in a company, you know, you, a CEO, a board actually rewards uh, investors and says, we're going to give some of that money back. So keep investing with us. Another way they could do it, though, is through dividends. This is true. Which would then be taxed. This on. is true. Thank you for helping us. That's what would be taxed, right? It's a little right. bit different there. <laughs> it is different. Thank you, Romans. Uh, a new bombshell from the Georgia grand jury investigating Donald Trump. The jury's four person tells CNN they recommended charges, but for who? Plus this, man, this is huge. CNN monitoring a winter storm that stretches from coast to coast. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So this morning, blizzard warnings from the Dakotas to Minnesota with more than 65 million people under winter alerts coast to coast this morning. That massive storm bringing rain, snow, and freezing temperatures across Utah. Some areas expecting two to three feet of snow and a very close call for a state trooper on an icy Wyoming highway. Look at this. It's dash cam video showing him narrowly escaping a runaway semi-truck as he was helping another driver. Wow, wow, wow. Straight to CNN's Adrian brought us live in Minnesota for us this morning, just south of St. Paul. Uh, good morning to you. This area is expecting the greatest three-day snowfall in 30 years. What you seeing, what's you seeing so far out there, Adrian? We are seeing snow, Don. It is falling lightly, but the snow here in Bloomington and in Minneapolis started yesterday. And this is what forecasters are calling day two of this three-day storm. Let me tell you what's happening right now. Here across the state of Minnesota, the governor, Tim Walls, has declared a peacetime emergency. So what does that mean? 
If people go out on the roads, even though they have been advised to stay at home, if you don't have to get out here, members of the National Guard will be deployed. They're already in place to help people if they need to be rescued. Also, MnDOT, that's the state's Department of Transportation, has more than 800 snowplows and 1,600 drivers across the state. And already this morning, I'm starting to lose count of the number of plows that I've seen along this highway behind us. And check your flights if you're heading out because there have been cancellations. Don? Right. Adrian, that is my biggest fear, those roadside live shots. I'm glad you're well off the highway. That trooper, you saw what could happen there. So be safe. Thank you, Adrian. Let's get to our meteorologist, Chad Myers, in the Weather Center. Chad, good morning. Big power outages, California, Nevada yeah. this morning. Is this a really dangerous storm system? It really is part of the icy event as well. Not only the snow that Adrian's going to see in Minneapolis and also up toward Milwaukee. We have wind advisories in parts of California. 140,000 customers without power there. Snow in the Rockies, snow across the northern plains, and even winter storm warnings for Maine. From California to Maine. This is just getting going this morning. Here's how it's going to shape up. There is rain to the south, temperatures above 32. There is temperature here and snow below 32. The rain is going to fall into this very cold air. There's going to be an ice storm, a significant ice storm. Even though you see the bullseye here in Michigan, there's going to be ice Chicago back to London, Ontario, Hamilton, all the way to the east. The snow is one of the stories, but the ice event with power lines, trees down, and treacherous driving here for the next few days across the upper Midwest. We'll keep watching. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot about it from home, that's for sure. Chad, thanks very, very much. Caitlin, back to you. <laughs> Yeah, we're live here in Warsaw. We're in just a few hours. Poppy and Don, President Biden is going to be meeting with the leaders of the Bucharest Nine. We'll tell you what he plans to tell the group that is on the front lines of defense as Russia is continuing its war in Ukraine. We're going to have live coverage here on the ground in Warsaw ahead. One year ago, remember, Putin thought the war would only last a few days, but clearly, he made a miscalculation in the ratio of f around to find out. <laughs> that was late night's assessment of President Biden's trip here in Warsaw. Very serious matters at hand, though. This morning, we are live here in Warsaw. President Biden is wrapping up his trip while also reaffirming U.S. solidarity with Ukraine in the days leading up to the one year anniversary of Russia's war. It's hard to believe that it's been a year, but on Friday, it will mark 365 days since Putin sent his troops into Ukraine. In a rousing speech on Tuesday, the president began by declaring Kyiv stands and Kyiv stands strong. He vowed that Russia would, quote, never win the war in Ukraine and said that the U.S. support for Ukraine or for Kyiv and its allies will, quote, never waver. The president also accused Russian forces of crimes against humanity. He called on the world to stand up to Russian atrocities and the, the actions we've seen from President Putin and his forces. In a few hours from now, President Biden is going to be meeting with the NATO, the leaders of NATO's eastern flank. They are known as the Bucharest Nine. It's in order to show support for their security. Those are the countries that have been concerned that Putin could take military action against them next if he's successful in Ukraine. It has been a high concern for many of them here. They're going to be looking to Biden Poppy and Don, for that level of support, for that affirmation that you heard him repeat so strongly in the place where he gave a speech just a year ago here in Poland. All right, Caitlin, thank you very much.
We're now hearing from the person responsible for speaking on behalf of the Atlanta-based grand jury that investigated former President Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The jury forewoman confirming that multiple incidents have been recommended, saying it's not a short list. The grand jury met for about seven months in her testimony from 75 witnesses, including some of Trump's closest advisors. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is now reviewing the recommendations and weighing charging decisions. Emily Kors says she wants to see some level of accountability. I will be sad if nothing happens. Like that's that's about my only request there is is for something to happen. I don't necessarily know what it is. I'm not the legal expert. I'm not the judge. I'm not the lawyers. But I I will be frustrated if nothing happens. So CNN's Paula Reed joins me now from Washington. Paula, good morning to you. It's interesting that she is speaking out, kind of hedging. Well, I can say this, but I can't say that. But I want to say something. What are you learning? Yeah, Don, this is very unusual. This a media forewoman giving effectively a, a, a media tour, this jury forewoman. And while she cannot disclose specifically what they recommended, she can reveal some details from inside uh, the jury room, some color. And she's trying to tease out exactly what she expects will happen. And of course, the biggest question she is getting is whether they recommended charging former President Trump. Let's take a listen to what she said. We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't, there are no major plot twists waiting for you. Now, former President Trump has insisted that the district attorney here is conducting a, quote, witch hunt. But here she insists that she believes the district attorney was proceeding in a nonpartisan way and was really trying to be fair. But look, I, I would expect that defense attorneys would have a field day uh, with an interview like this. So, Paula, who else did the jury hear from and, and what did she say about them? Yeah, Donna, it was interesting to hear her observations from inside the jury room because they heard from so many people that we're very familiar with, like Senator Lindsey Graham. I mean, he fought all the way to the Supreme Court to try to get out of testifying here. But she describes him as, quote, being polite and even joking with jurors. She described Rudy Giuliani as being funny and thoughtful when he's invoking privilege. Now, she has every right to do this, to discuss these things, but it's unclear what impact this will have on the case. This grand jury could not indict. So that decision now is up to the district attorney, Fannie Willis. She says her decision on whether to proceed is imminent. All right. Thank you, Paula Reed. Appreciate that. It's, we want to hear from her. It's frustrating. But then she says it, but then kind of almost goes there. I was really surprised yeah. to see this interview and her coming out. But Paula makes a good point that in Georgia, grand juries can't indict. Right. So they recommend. And now Fonnie Willis has a huge decision ahead yeah. of her. And we'll be watching to see what happens. Meantime, Republican lawmakers are bitterly divided over the U.S. aid being sent to Ukraine. The new CNN reporting straight ahead. Plus six. It's my belief that the efforts of unionization in America are in many ways a manifestation mm -hmm. of a much bigger problem. That is Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz joining us to talk about the unionization movement at the coffee giant. You'll see it next. Don, are you going to drink your coffee? <laughs> if you are waking up before you go-go, there is a chance that you've had a cup of coffee and you're 
hand right now. And with $32 billion in revenue last year, there's also a good chance that coffee is from Starbucks. The company operates more than 9,000 stores across America. But over the past year, the comb at the coffee shop at some locations has been pierced by this. Proud, everybody say it loud. Union strong, union proud, everybody say it loud. Baristas on the picket line unionization at nearly 300 Starbucks locations. And this is where it all started, at a shop in Buffalo, New York, that unionized in December 2021. That is five months before Howard Schultz returned to his role as CEO of Starbucks. He tells me he didn't come back to the job because of the wave of union efforts. But it is now a critical issue on his plate as he prepares to step down this spring. You've run Starbucks three times. Yes. You've left Starbucks three times. Yeah. Is this the final time, full stop? Yeah. You're ready to let go? I'm ready to let go. I'm ready for the next chapter of my life. I don't know what that's going to be. Yeah. But I'm not coming back to Starbucks. A defining moment for the man and a defining moment for the company he built. When I think back, 1987, we had, uh, you know, basically... 11 stores, 100 people working for the company in a dream. Starbucks green and white siren would come to stand for one of the most progressive companies in the world. What do we want? Full staffing! That legacy is now being tested in what Howard Schultz describes as a battle for hearts and minds. We are the As he looks to step down as CEO this spring. I came back this past year because the company really did lose its way. And it lost its way culturally. I'd be the first to say the union showed up because Starbucks was not leading in a way that was consistent with its history in terms of being a values-based company. And I came back to basically restore those values. After nearly running for president following his departure from Starbucks in 2017. We need to restore dignity to the White House. Schultz returned last year, confronting a growing unionization movement. You've said that unions are contrary to Starbucks vision. Yes. And that's your vision. Well, it's not only my vision. I think the 51-year the history of Starbucks is a vision a collective group of people that believe right. in doing everything to create value for our people so that we can create value for our shareholders, and we've done that. Why do you think unions are contrary to the vision of Starbucks? Okay. Yeah. Let's first examine that unions in America, uh, for the most part, have existed and have succeeded in the past because of companies that did nefarious things on the backs of their people, that they put their people last instead of first. Now let's look at Starbucks. Starbucks employs 450,000 people around the world, 250,000 people in the U.S. in our stores. We provide unprecedented benefits, not because a union told us to, but because the conscience of the company and my own life story is based on trying to build a company that my father, a blue collar worker, was not given, not afforded those rights. Canarsie is one of the neighborhoods in Brooklyn. As a child growing up in public housing. You see the seven floor? Schultz watched his father lose his job and benefits. I think, There was always a constant pressure for money. There was always bill collectors calling. There was arguing and dysfunction in my house. 
people who are living here. He cites that experience as the foundation of why Starbucks offers health insurance, equity through stock options, and free college tuition. We're not a perfect company, right. but I'm saying this because we didn't have a union or an outside party tell us what to do. We did this because we want to be in service of our people. Now, if a de minimis group of people, which now is about 300 stores, file for a petition to be unionized, they have a right to do so. But we as a company have a right also to say we have a different vision that is better, more dynamic, and we have a history to prove it. That vision is now being challenged with an alternate one. We find ourselves at the forefront of a new labor movement. Starbucks Workers United says it wants power sharing and accountability. The company is refusing to bargain with us. We don't get it. Shut it down. We're understaffed. We're underpaid. They're, you know, playing these games. The corporate is setting this, you know, the tone of, you know, what to expect for the labor movement in the future. So the National Labor Relations Board, as you know, yeah. has said uh, that you guys aren't playing fair. You're not coming to the table. Yeah. You're not bargaining with them. Senator Bernie Sanders, in a letter to you really recently, accused you of a legal union busting okay. campaign. What's the facts? The facts are we want to enter into collective bargaining, but we want to do it in person. In person, not on Zoom. We don't know who's on a Zoom call. We don't know how many people are on a Zoom call. We don't know what's being taped. We want to do it in person. Up till now, there has been a refusal to bargain in person. The union calls that hypocritical and a clear union-busting strategy, pointing to Starbucks' own Zoom meetings. Do you believe that there is room for a part of the Starbucks workforce to be unionized? I think that'll have to happen in collective bargaining. Because previously you've said, no, this is not in your vision. And the unions have said that yeah. is evidence that you are not, you know, going to bargain with them. Could you ever see doing that embracing the union as part of it? No. I can tell you unequivocally, we are willing to sit down okay. and bargain in person. If Senator Sanders has a problem with bargaining in person, I'd like to understand why. Senator Sanders has since invited uh, Schultz to testify to Congress next month, alleging a lack of compliance with federal labor laws. Schultz declined that invitation, noting his pending departure from the company. But Starbucks has offered to send another executive in his place, saying, quote, we look forward to a productive discussion with the committee. In 10 months, I've done everything I possibly could to address the problems that I heard from our people. Mm -hmm. We've added $40 billion of market value in the 10 months that I've been back in a time when the economic environment for most public stocks are down. Can you help average person at home watching this, maybe wondering, Yeah. why can't you run a successful Starbucks with unions? You're so profitable. Why doesn't that work? Well, first off, you know, I've, I've, asked, I, I've asked a few people who have signed a union card to petition, can you tell me what you want? Yeah. You have a very high wage. We just gave you digital tipping, which increases your average wage by more than $2 so, you an you know, hour. the unions say you only did that because they proposed the idea. That is unequivocally not true. I remember uh, reading in one of your memoirs, I knew in my heart that if I was ever in a position where I could make a difference, I wouldn't leave people behind. Mm -hmm. What do you say to those people who look at you and say, we feel left behind, why can't you support okay. us in this union push? Okay. It's my belief that 
The efforts of unionization in America are in many ways a manifestation mm -hmm. of a much bigger problem. I've talked to thousands of our Starbucks partners in these co-creation sessions, and I was shocked, stunned to hear the loneliness, the anxiety, the fracturing of trust in government, fracturing trust in companies, fracturing of trust in family, the lack of hope in terms of opportunity. The primary reason that I was interested in trying to run for president was the very essence of helping people try, based on the life that I've led and where I grew up, to create an opportunity to get out of the malaise that they're, they're in. But I think though some of those people are the ones that are pushing for unionization now and looking to you as the head of the company yeah. to come to the table with and, them. Right? And, when I, and when I ask them, what is it that you want that you don't have? Yeah. Is it more benefits? It's, not, it's generally not wage or benefits. Most of the time they say something to me like, we want a seat at the table. And so what does that mean? You're about to leave this company. Yeah. Do you worry as you leave the role of CEO that perhaps Starbucks won't be remembered as the progressive company that you have built because of this no. battle? No. The history of Starbucks has been we have been a compassionate company. Mm -hmm. the, the union issue is one of many issues that Starbucks faces. Do you see the union push as an existential threat to the Starbucks that you built? No. It is not an existential okay. threat. No, not at all. I recognize the right that Starbucks partners have, a, have the right if they want to try and unionize their store or their district, whatever. But we have a right as a company mm -hmm. to create the vision for the company, which the large, vast majority of Starbucks partners mm -hmm. embraces. Hmm. They're really in, at the forefront of what's going to happen with unions. It's happening to many countries, not just in the country, but all over the world. It's a great point. I mean, Starbucks has uh, become the poster child, right, for this new wave of unionization across the country, whether it's Amazon or Apple. And I'm fascinated to see what happens because, as you saw in the piece, Starbucks has been sort of this leading progressive company, mm. but still there is a big union push. So what comes of this like writ large is going to be fascinating to, and important to watch for those workers. When you told him that you didn't like hot coffee anymore. Oh my God. So coming up at the 8 a.m. hour, <laughs> you will see what Don's talking about. We traveled to Italy with Howard Schultz um, to show you his last big bet as the CEO of Starbucks. And I told him there, I don't like hot coffee. And he couldn't believe it after all these years covering him in the company. I don't like it. I like, I like iced coffee, but I don't drink hot coffee. So we'll get into that. But actually, you'll see the surprising ingredient he wants you to try in your next cup of coffee. Do you know what it is? Um, yeah, I do know what it is because I tried it. Well, first it was butter, which I did this summer, the bullet. And now it is oil, olive oil. Olive oil. Olive oil. Yeah. Okay, we'll see what Don thinks. Stop eating poppy seeds. What? <laughs> Stop eating poppy seeds. <laughs> That warning from the Pentagon to active service members, why new research shows it could be risky for our troops. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this you're not going to believe. I found out why I was testing positive for opium. Poppy seeds. Poppy seeds. 
Well, this morning, the Pentagon warning service members to choose their breakfast carefully because poppy seeds and the bagels and muffins they're typically found on could cause them to fail drug testing. That is according to an official memo, which talks about higher codeine contamination that previously um, that then previously known. Now, the memo did not say how long they could avoid the seeds, but explained that the policy could be revised more as more information becomes Available. Why did I never know about this? But I'm learning something yeah, new every day. Yeah, it's an old thing with poppy seeds would just mess up drug tests. People thought I you were doing no pot idea. or whatever. Yeah. All right. Also this morning, a newlywed couple in North Carolina thanking firefighters for rescuing them. After look at them, oh, they look gorgeous, but they got trapped in that hotel elevator on the day of their wedding. The Jaw family says they were heading upstairs with a few guests after their to their wedding party, after party, when suddenly their special day took a drastic turn. We got up maybe five feet and then boom, doors kind of stuck. Then the door started to open. And so I could see like the concrete wall right in front of me and I could see the concrete wall behind me. I was like, that's not normal. That's not good. Crews had to hoist people through the top of the elevator so they could safely exit through the fourth floor. The couple took this photo two and a half hours later when everyone was out safe and sound. Unfortunately, they never made it to the after party. Happy wedding to them though. Mm. Caitlin. Also here in Warsaw, we are tracking President Biden as he is on his final day. You can hear the sirens behind me. That is President Biden's on the move, expressing unwavering support while here for Ukraine as the one-year anniversary of Russia's war is approaching. We'll tell you what to expect on the final day ahead. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. <laughs> President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail, and the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. Very powerful speech, and I would say historic from the yeah. president. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. President Biden making a solemn vow on the world stage. Russia will lose and Ukraine will win with America's help. We're live in Warsaw, where Biden is about to meet with leaders from NATO's eastern flank. And in just a moment, we're going to uh, break down the billions of dollars in weapons and aid that the U.S. is delivering to Ukraine. Yeah, and a new half a billion dollars that President Biden just announced. There's also skepticism growing back at home. The Republican Party is becoming bitterly divided over sending more support to the Ukrainians. While some GOP lawmakers are in Ukraine visiting with President Zelensky, others are back at home in Washington criticizing President Biden's visit. We have new CNN reporting ahead. Plus, the head of the EPA drinking a glass of tap water, obviously very significant, near the site of that toxic train wreck in Ohio. Is that enough, though, to assure families that they are safe? The EPA administrator will join us live on the program. But let's talk about this. One year ago, President Biden pledged to support Ukraine after Russia's invasion. This was then. My message to the people of Ukraine is a message I delivered today to Ukraine's foreign minister, and defense minister, who I believe are here tonight. We stand with you, period. And this is now, one year later, he has a similar message. That dark night, one year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kyiv. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. 
Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. So President Biden announcing an extra half billion dollars in aid while on the ground at the start of this week. Let's walk you through exactly what the U.S. has provided up to this point. Okay, so here we go. This is what we have provided up to this point. Over the last year, the U.S. has sent nearly $30 billion in aid to Ukraine. To put that in perspective, Walmart's revenue in 2022 was $573 billion. This is what is included in that. Included in the aid, over 100 million artillery rounds, also 56,000 missiles and rockets and drones, over 2,500 of them, plus there's what the U.S. will provide Ukraine in the coming weeks and months, okay? This is what we're going to provide in the coming weeks and months. Ukraine is set to receive the Patriot Missile Defense System, which the U.S. agreed to send late last year. Like a lot of the military equipment we're talking about, it is something that President Zelensky pleaded for for months. And just last month, okay? President Biden's pledge to Ukraine expanded to include Abrams tanks, a move that added uh, the U.S. to a list of NATO allies donating tanks to the war effort. Now, take a look at the battlefield equipment delivered or pledged to Ukraine. I remember at the start of the war talking with CNN military analysts about what was needed. They needed those howitzers on the ground. Those are like cannons. Like I said, massive tanks are now on the way. All of this to keep Ukraine in the fight. Caitlin. Yeah, and certainly still big questions about what could potentially come next to Ukraine. They don't have everything they've been asking for lately. Let's bring in CNN's White House correspondent, Jeremy Diamond. Jeremy, you know, we have been talking about President Biden's steadfast pledge to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But you know, there's real challenges that the White House recognizes behind the scenes. There are concerns about it becoming a, a stalemate, essentially, on the ground. You know, how is the White House navigating this? What does it look like a year in for them? Well, first, Caitlin, when you look back to the year of the U.S. providing security assistance to Ukraine, it's a story that has really been defined by the U.S. providing increasingly sophisticated, more powerful weaponry to Ukraine over time, even when it has previously denied Ukraine's request for some of that very same types of weaponry. And it's often taken a dramatic shift in battlefield conditions to get the U.S. to that point. Think back to last October when uh, a week-long Russian barrage destroyed nearly a third of Ukraine's power station, plunging millions of Ukrainians into the darkness ahead of winter. Back in Washington, that was a game changer. I'm told by a senior administration official that President Biden was outraged by Russia's deliberate attacks on civilian infrastructure. He was concerned that Ukraine's air defenses would be spread too thin, and therefore he directed the Pentagon to look for a way to get a Patriot missile defense system, the U.S.'s most advanced air defense system, to Ukraine. And until that point, U.S. officials uh, had called that uh, Patriot defense system too complex and too scarce to provide it. But all of that changed with the president's directive following those Russian attacks. Yeah. And Jeremy, what about the next year ahead? What is the White House's sense of how how aid will continue to evolve since there are some Republicans who say no more aid should go to Ukraine? Well, there are the domestic political concerns, as you just lined out, but there are also just broader concerns about how much ammunition and weaponry there actually is still to provide to Ukraine. Uh, U.S. officials are under no illusion that this is going to be a very tough year ahead. There are dwindling Western defense stockpiles, including in particular, one of the concerns is artillery. Ukraine has really been fighting this uh, high expenditure artillery-based warfare. The U.S. officials are now trying to get Ukraine to start shifting to a more maneuver, uh, modern war 
warfare style that would use less artillery ammunition, for example, and also U.S. officials believe give them a tactical advantage. And of course, there's the question of what is next for the United States? We've seen them already go back on the Patriot system. We've seen them go back on tanks and decide to provide those. Now Ukrainian officials, of course, are trying to get F-16s, for example. Uh, we'll see if that is next or perhaps the HIMARS, that uh, long-range uh, missile system which Ukrainian officials have been asking for. Caitlin? Yeah, we'll wait to see. Jeremy Diamond, thank you. And we should note the broader context of what's happening today is President Biden is preparing to wrap up his final day. You are seeing China's top diplomat in Russia today meeting with President Putin. This is Wang Yi, who was just a few days ago face to face having a tense meeting with Secretary of State Blinken. Now he is there inside the Kremlin across the table from President Putin. All of this comes as we are now learning the Chinese president himself may be preparing to visit Russia and this comes as the U.S. is warning. They believe China might be pre preparing, Don, to then deliver lethal assistance to Russia, which, of course, would be a major help to them as they are having their own issues with weaponry and ammunition in Ukraine. And we will be watching. New CNN reporting this morning to tell you about says the GOP remains bitterly divided over whether the U.S. should continue sending aid to Ukraine. Some House Republicans led a congressional delegation to Ukraine to reaffirm U.S. support. Meanwhile, here at home, firebrand Republicans criticized Biden for visiting Ukraine and call for an end to Ukraine funding. Seen as Melanie Zanona live on Capitol Hill with us this morning. Good morning to you, Melanie. How is uh, the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy handling the divide in his party? Well, no doubt, this is a real challenge for Republican leaders on Capitol Hill, and it's a fight that's only going to intensify in the months ahead, especially with the war continuing to drag on and with Republicans looking to rein in federal spending. In one corner of the party, you do have a large block of Republicans who are committed to reaffirming the United States' commitment to Ukraine. You had people making that pitch over the weekend at the Global Security Conference. You had a delegation of Republicans in Ukraine yesterday following President Joe Biden's surprise visit there. But in the other corner of the party, you do have a small but very vocal and influential block of Republicans who are calling to end all aid, financially and militarily, to Ukraine. Uh, they also were criticizing President Joe Biden's trip there publicly, making for quite the dramatic split-screen moment in the Republican Party. But this is a dynamic that Kevin McCarthy is very, very carefully navigating because he knows he needs those firebrand Republicans, he needs their support to do anything around here in Capitol Hill. And I was recently with him at the border, and I asked him about a resolution from Congressman Matt Gates that would express a desire to end all military and financial aid to Ukraine. McCarthy told me he does not support that re resolution, but he did say that Republicans aren't just going to rubber stamp whatever the administration requests. Take a listen. I support Ukraine. I don't support a blank check, though. We, we spent $100 billion here. We want to win. I think the actions that President Biden has taken have been too late. So this is something that Kevin McCarthy is going to have to deal with, as well as Mitch McConnell. They could pass Ukraine funding with the support of Democrats, of course, to get it over the finish line. But that would risk alienating the right flank. And it's unclear if that is a risk McCarthy is willing to take. Don. All right. Melanie Zanona, Capitol Hill. Thank you. Uh, also, uh, right, quite a day for the stock market yesterday. Yeah. Wow, quite a decline right now. Stock futures are up this morning after the market had its worst day yesterday since December. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Roman, is back with us to help us understand why <laughs> this was about big box retailers. Yeah. And, you know, markets go up and down, and I don't really 
care unless it's a 2% move. And that was a 2% move yesterday. Uh, across the board, 2.5% for the NASDAQ. So it shows you there were some concerns here. You had a couple of big box stores that are signaling caution on the consumer. Now, let me be clear here. Walmart had a great quarter, 8.3% a sales increase for stores open a year or longer. That's good. Anybody would like that. Retail sales continue to be strong, but they're looking out in the future. And the strength in the economy could mean more interest rate hikes, and that could put more pressure on the economy. And they're starting to see some Weakness in their low-income consumers in particular, and a shift toward uh, services from goods as we continue this post-COVID transition. So some caution from those big box retailers really kind of struck a nerve yesterday. Um, I was really struck by this from the Walmart's chief financial officer saying on the call yesterday, the consumer is still very pressured. If you look at economic indicators, balance sheets are running thinner, savings rates are declining they're, they're really worried them. There's Home Depot news also. So they're worried about the future. And they're worried about, as time goes by, this extra cash cushion that so many families have built up um, from the from COVID is going to start to wind down and they're going to rely on their credit cards more and they might change their spending. So they're worried about that. But I'll tell you, it's interesting. Things are are resilient in the economy. The consumer has been doing fine. We saw those retail sales numbers that were just blockbuster. So we know the consumer is still spending. They're worried about the future. And one of the reasons uh, they're also worried, it's this what's good news for Main Street is bad news for Wall Street, right? right. The Fed is going to probably have to try to continue to raise interest rates for longer and can do it because the consumer is strong, which means that is more pressure on the consumer. So we're in this very funny, confusing moment, I think. Home Depot raising pay? And it just highlights the very tight labor market. Home Depot raising pay for its frontline workers. They already started at $15 an hour. They're trying to keep people. They don't want to lose people. We've told you how many times the biggest fear among many corporate executives is not what's down the pike, but it's keeping on to the workers they have right now because workers have a lot of choices. They have higher wages, jobs they can go to, and they will job hop. So they're raising salaries so that they can keep people. And hanging on to the profits, which is a whole nother show. (laughs) Because, I mean... If you think about it, if we're struggling in a struggling economy and we're coming out of COVID, then there should be some sort of realization from these companies. Well, maybe our profits won't be as big, and but that's, that's not going to be the end of our company. And that's what they're saying. Um, this is one of the reasons why Wall Street was roiled yesterday, because yeah. both those companies signal more caution ahead about yeah. profit. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. OK, a, a huge cleanup still underway after that toxic That train loaded with toxic chemicals derailed in Ohio. Now the federal government wants the train company to foot the bill. Coming up, we'll be joined by the head of the EPA as he tries to assure residents the drinking water is safe. Plus, we are now hearing from the foreperson of the grand jury investigating Donald Trump in Georgia, and she just dropped a bombshell. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We are now hearing from the person responsible for speaking on behalf of the Atlanta-based grand jury that investigated former President Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. That is the jury forewoman confirming that multiple indictments have been recommended, saying it's not a short list. The grand jury met about seven months and heard from witnesses, testimony from 75 witnesses, including some of Trump's closest advisors. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is now reviewing those recommendations and weighing charging decisions. Emily Kors, that's the name of the jury forewoman, says she wants to see some level of accountability. I will be sad if nothing happens. Like that's that's about my only request there is is for something to happen. I don't necessarily know what it is. I'm not the legal expert. 
I'm not the judge, I'm not the lawyers, but I, I will be frustrated if nothing happens. Oh, wow. Okay, so joining us now, senior political analyst and New York Times senior political correspondent Maggie Haberman. So it's interesting to hear a four-person say that and said she'd be surprised if nothing happened. Let me just ask you, I think it's important to hear from her to set this up, what happened. Poppy mentioned 77 months hearing testimony from 75 witnesses uh, who made their recommendations regarding the indictment. And then Fannie Willis, who's a Fulton County district attorney, she made the recommendations. The four-person in this grand jury said this, where she is sort of seemingly saying that there might be an indictment for the former president. I want to hear what you have to think. Here it is. Uh, We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't... There are no major plot twists waiting for you. So will he or won't he? I mean... Maybe, perhaps. I mean, look, she certainly seems like she's teasing that, you know, stay tuned, um, that that something is coming related to him. But she doesn't uh, go further than that, I assume, because she got some instructions on what she could actually say. Unusual to hear. I've never heard. I've covered courts on and off for the last 20 years, uh, more than that. I've never heard of a a grand jury four person speaking this way. Now, this is a fact finding grand jury. This is not a charging grand jury. But even still, I've never seen anything like it. If I'm the prosecutor, I'm not sure that I want this media tour taking place because I'm confident that Donald Trump's lawyers are going to use this just based on what I was hearing last night from people uh, to try to argue that this is prejudicial in terms of what she's saying. It was interesting um, to to Don's point about what the what Trump came out and said on social media on Truth Social, thanking the special grand jury, saying total exoneration. I can't imagine being Fonnie Willis right now. Like, you've got your four person out there as you're trying to make this decision. Didn't she say, like, did he actually read the documents when he said that? Yeah, Yeah, and this was not a total exoneration, frankly, any more than the Mueller report was a total exoneration, which he said about that, too. But that's, I think, a separate issue from what the grand jury forewoman is saying. I mean, she's given this extensive media tour. I saw some quotes that I think she gave to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution where uh, Trump, she was asked about that quote, where Trump said this is an exoneration, and she started laughing and said, oh, that's fantastic, I love that. I don't see how that's helpful if you're a prosecutor, because Fonnie Willis still has to, it's not, automatic that charges get filed now that that seems like that's the likeliest thing to do Fonnie Willis is a very aggressive prosecutor but this is just you know at at least in my experience covering courts not helpful to a district attorney when they are trying to put their case together let me read you the first line from your reporting you say former president Donald Trump who throughout his business career had a reputation for not paying lawyers spent nearly 10 million dollars from his political action committee on his own legal fees last year federal elections filing show so him running for president, does that help to pay for his legal fees? If he wasn't running, he'd have to pay it himself. And this whole idea about it, well, if I'm being investigated, then if he's being investigated, then perhaps there won't be an indictment. So there's a gray area as to uh, what happens with his, per- these are, this is from his PAC. And this was the PAC that had all of this money raised into it initially at the end of 2022, I think, in, uh, excuse me, uh, 2020, early 2021, on uh, claims of investigating widespread fraud. They did spend some of the money for that. They obviously did not confirm there was widespread fraud, but they started, this turned into a, into a you know, wide, broad use pack 
he was able to use that money to pay his personal legal fees. Now that he's a candidate, there are some experts on campaign finance who actually think he can't use it anymore. Um, not being able to have other people pay for him has always been a disincentive to Donald Trump. So I don't know what that looks like going forward as he's facing, um, at the moment, two trials in April uh, related to E. Jean Carroll, the woman who has accused him of rape. He is facing an intensified Georgia investigation, intensified New York investigation, and intensified uh, Justice Department investigations. Uh, this is, again, a guy who is facing enormous legal uh, issues and the potential of paying for this himself, which he never likes. Mm. Um, let's switch gears here because uh, former President Trump is going to Ohio today, East Palestine to be specific, the site of the toxic train wreck um, in a county where he won more than 70 percent of the vote in 2020. And as Nikki Haley is criticizing Biden for not going, the, the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg hasn't been yet. Trump capitalizing on Yeah, that. I mean, if this was not a Trump plus 20 district, as you just said, I don't think you would be seeing him there. If this was anything that was, uh, you know, much closer electorally, he has been looking for opportunities to put himself in the news cycle. We were just talking about fundraising and money that he's raised. His campaign has not raised a ton of money. Uh, and that is part of why you are not seeing him do big rallies, because those are very expensive. So he's looking for ways to put himself in and look as if he's, you know, a contrasting president with, with President Biden. It can be very dicey when people show up when they have no actual role in a in a disaster. And so he's not known for his empathy to begin with. Uh, so we will see how this visit goes. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. Maggie, thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. So speaking of East Palestine, there's new reporting this morning. The EPA ordering Norfolk Southern to pay for the train derailment cleanup in East Palestine. The EPA says it will oversee and manage the rehabilitation of contaminated water and soil, require that Norfolk Southern hold community meetings and make sure that Norfolk Southern pays for all cleanup costs. The Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, and EPA Administrator Michael Regan were in East Palestine yesterday where they drank tap water to help reassure residents that the water there is safe. Straight now to talk to the EPA headquarters where uh, CNN's Sarah Seidner, I should say, to EPA headquarters where Sarah Seidner is with the EPA Administrator, Michael Regan. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Don. Um, yes, we're here uh, in the EPA headquarters, a gorgeous building, uh, with the EPA Administrator Michael Regan. Thank you so much for coming on uh, this morning. I know that you've been very, very busy um, for a really unfortunate situation. Um, let's first talk about uh, something that Don just mentioned, which is you went in and with the governor drank a glass of water and said, look, things are okay. But I will tell you from uh, one of the people that we spoke with yesterday from East Palestine, she said to us, look, when I take a shower, my skin burns, uh, I have nausea, I have constant headaches, and I don't believe that this is safe to drink, that the soil is safe to, to plant anything in, and that the air is safe to breathe. What do you tell someone who's having symptoms like this? And she's not the only one. Well, you know, I, I think that they have uh, a lot of trauma in that community, and people are experiencing a lot of things. The first thing I would say is anybody experiencing any adverse health impact, they should seek medical attention from their primary doctor or I was with the governor yesterday and they just opened a new clinic where, we, where they can guide people to seek medical attention. Uh, you know, I see them, I hear them, I'm not second guessing their experiences. Uh, what I can say is uh, the water that has been tested and the air that has been tested uh, is coming back with no adverse health impact levels. And so we can provide the data, but if people are experiencing things, we're not going to second guess anyone's experience. 
Uh, I'm asking that they seek medical attention uh, at the local level. To your point, you're saying you believe them, that they are going through these things. Um, and to their point, though, they say, look, you have tested. They realize that. But you can't test everything. Hmm. Is it possible that some of these contaminants have made it into areas where they have not been tested and that there is still a danger there in East Palestine? Uh, listen, I trust the data. I trust the science. Uh, from day one, we have been on the ground along with the state doing the testing. At EPA, we've deployed aerial testing, an airplane, high-tech airplane. Uh, we've deployed mobile uh, testing, a, a, a van that is going in and out of the communities. We have stationary air monitors all around the community strategically placed. And we have tested the indoor air quality of over 550 homes. Uh, nothing is coming back that shows adverse health impacts. And we are testing for everything that was on that train. I also te trust the testing protocol of the state. Uh, they have a very rigorous testing model, uh, and they've tested the municipal water. I would say for those who are on private wells, if you have not had your water tested, please contact the state. And as Governor DeWine has said, don't drink well water unless you have had those wells tested. Okay, that's really important because what you're saying is there is always a possibility that contaminants can exist somewhere that has not been tested and you need to really be careful. I'm hoping that the state or the, the federal government pays for those tests. Is that something that is going to happen? Listen, uh, yesterday's announcement will ensure that Norfolk Southern pays for the mess that they've created. And so we are encouraging everyone, seek medical attention, ensure that the state and local health agencies understand those experiences because as we uh, force Norfolk Southern to take full accountability for what they've done, Norfolk Southern will pay for everything. And anything that we do, Norfolk Southern will reimburse us. They are the ones that caused this mess. They are the ones that are gonna clean up and fix this mess. Let me tell, ask you how that's going to happen. What have you done so far as the EPA administrator and the EPA at large uh, to push Norfolk Southern to do all of the things that you just mentioned to yes. take responsibility. Yesterday's announcement sort of laid out the fact that uh, we are transitioning from an emergency response phase, which was led by the state with EPA supporting the state into a cleanup, a longer term cleanup phase. Uh, what I announced using my legal authority, we can hold Norfolk Southern accountable. Number one, they will clean up every single uh, you know, uh, piece of debris, all of the contamination, uh, to EPA specifications and satisfaction. Number two, they will pay for it, fully pay for it. At any moment, if we have to step in because they refuse to do anything, we will do the cleaning up ourselves. We can find them up to $70,000 a day. And when we recoup our total cost, we can charge them three times the amount of the cost of the federal government. That is what the law provides for me. We're going to use the full extent of our oversight and enforcement to hold Norfolk Southern accountable. And they have to design a very specific work plan that's approved by EPA. So we're gonna make sure that every single step is included, no stone is left unturned, because the fact of the matter is, they caused this trauma to the community, and we're gonna make sure that they pay for it. 
last question. You and I have traveled around. I have met up with you in places like Mississippi, uh, West Virginia, on the water issue in this country. And the thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again is trust. The communities in these places that have dealt with something like this or that have had contaminated water, whether it be lead or bacteria, do not trust that they are going to be cared for. Yes. They don't trust the federal government, they don't trust the state government, they don't trust their local government, and they don't trust the companies who have done some of this in those specific cases. What are you gonna do about the lack of trust? Uh, and they have reason for it, because yes. sometimes they've been lied to. You know, I'll do what we talked about yesterday during the announcement, standing on the stage uh, with Republicans and Democrats uh, from two states at all levels of government, our sole goal is to win back and earn the trust of the community. We recognize that there's a trust deficit. I sat down and did a community roundtable. I visited homes in the ground of East uh, Palestine. I know that a trust deficit exists. They gave us some very prescribed solutions, and we're gonna try to act on those. Part of it is just being extremely transparent, making information available, and allowing them to take that raw data and information and let third parties validate that for them. So we have to be transparent, we have to be forthright, and listen, as Democrats and Republicans, we have to be united. United on making sure that the water, air, and soil is safe. Thank you so much, EPA Administrator Michael Regan. I appreciate you coming on and, and speaking to people who are really concerned right now about their own health. Uh, I'm gonna toss it back to you, Don. All right, thank you both, really appreciate that. And we need to tell the viewers that tonight, be sure to tune into CNN at 9 p.m. for a town hall, a CNN town hall on the toxic train disaster. The Ohio Governor Mike DeWine will be there along with concerned residents. You don't want to miss that. And our Miguel Marquez is live on the ground in East Palestine as we hear from the CEO of Norfolk Southern. Miguel? Yeah, Norfolk Southern is talking. Officials are talking. I want to give you a sense of what is happening here. This massive cleanup underway. We will have a lot more for you coming up at 8 a.m. Also this morning, it is being called Rail Force One. Next, hear how the CEO of Ukrainian Railways and his team secretly got President Biden into and out of Ukraine. That's next. As he made the long and surreal journey into Kyiv, President Biden was not on a plane operated by the U.S. military, but instead on a train run by Ukrainian railways. President Biden boarded the train at the Poland-Ukraine border. That's the same station where many of thousands of refugees also traveled through after Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago, fleeing with their families and for their safety from Putin's war. The head of Ukraine's railway system has dubbed the trip Rail Force One now, saying that it was an honor to host Biden, while acknowledging that it was quite a complicated journey to actually get the president uh, on that plane, the complicated project, as he described it. Alexander Kamushin then apologized for breaking the railway's on-time performance, saying still 90 percent of the trains on that secret trip as it was going on did operate on time. He said it was painful for me and my team, but I had to do that. Only 90% of our trains arrived on time yesterday. I apologize. I spoke with Alexander Kamushin just before the program this morning. Joining me now is the CEO of Ukrainian Railways, Alexander Kamushin. Alexander, thank you so much for being with us. I know you've had uh, uh, quite a week. When did you find out that, that President Biden was coming, that he was going to be riding on one of your trains? 
Well, we were happy to bring him in and out uh, with this visit. I'm sure that that was a historical moment for Ukraine, for US, for the whole world. Because uh, if you remember, Russians uh, promised to take Kyiv in three days. And finally, on 362nd day of the war, President Biden appears in Kyiv and walks across the street with my president, Zelensky. So it's kind of really historical moment. We were happy and privileged and honored to be the official carrier of the President Biden. So we called our train Royal Force One. <laughs> Rail Force One, that is what you've dubbed it now that President Biden has been on board. Yep. You talked to my colleague Anderson Cooper about a year ago, and you told him then you were ready to host President Biden if he was going to come to Ukraine. You were ready for him uh, to travel in one of your cars. But when you found out that he was actually coming, were you, were you kind of nervous? I was not nervous, but focused and uh, determined until the moment he left the borders of Ukraine. Because trust me, it was a complicated mission and uh, we got pretty much job to do to make it happen in the proper way. And we've done it. Yeah, what kind of preparation goes into that? How do, how do you prepare to, to host the U.S. president in such a dangerous time and dangerous place? We were hand-in-hand hand with the embassy of U.S. In Ukraine, we worked hand-in-hand hand with other special uh, services uh, from U.S. side, from Ukrainian side, the Minister of Infrastructure of Ukraine. And finally, we got this job done. And you've also hosted other world leaders. Every world leader that's come into Ukraine has traveled on one of your trains getting into Kyiv. What is the responsibility like to, to have people like that on your trains? Well, we already got about 300 official delegations with worldwide leaders, presidents, prime ministers, members of parliament, of the Congress. And uh, it's really a responsible mission for us. We call this mission Iron Diplomacy. And uh, that's how we help our president to make his diplomatic mission happen. And uh, every single guest of Iron Diplomacy program is an honored uh, guest for us. We do our best to bring them in and out sa uh, safely. That's first of all. Second, we try to show them what is Ukraine, because they usually spend on the train much more time than in the city. And that was the case with President Biden as well. He spent 20 hours on the train and only four hours in the city. So we try to... We do our best to make their trip unforgettable. Yeah, it is quite a trip. It's 20 hours with both ways included. Russia, the Russians have, have struck the trains before the train tracks. Are you ever worried about retaliation when something like this happens? Well, we are on the force day before. They tell us daily. So we kind of know what to do now and we are ready for that. And actually, we always fix, always get back to operations. We never stop, never cancel any single train. 
I think one of the most remarkable things that you said yesterday when you were talking about the complicated process of getting President Biden into Kyiv on one of your trains was you apologize to other people who take Ukrainian railways, saying that only 90 percent of the trains were on time yesterday. I think everyone could, could give you a pass for this one, given you were accommodating the U.S. president on such a secret visit. Well, you know, for us, on-time performance is a really important focus. During the war, people should rely on something. Railways became a reliable transportation for our people. And that's why we had to delay some trains to make the Rail Force One run smoothly and safely. And I had to apologize because we usually strive to get better performance. But two days ago, it was not that good. I know the war has had such an impact on you personally. You have been trying to keep the trains running, as you were noting, as this source of stability for so many of your fellow Ukrainians. You yourself didn't see your family really at the beginning of the war, if I remember correctly. How have you been doing? Well, like many Ukrainians, I've got what you say, personal impact. And uh, like many Ukrainians, uh, that's really uh, significant and uh, high price we're paying in this war, uh, missing our our families and uh, having uh, fighting in this war. Uh, finally, I'm sure that one day we'll make this victory day closer, and uh, then it would be great time to spend more time with the family and uh, have some time. Alexander Commission, CEO of Ukrainian Railways, thank you for joining us to talk about your amazing trip that you hosted for, for President Biden this week. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for inviting Travel by Trains. Hmm. <laughs> Travel by Train. It was such a... It's such a good point that he made, though, about what a sign of stability the trains really have been for the, for the Ukrainian people. The fact that they have been the main mode of transportation for so many, not just U.S. presidents and world leaders. Yeah. Can you imagine the responsibility no. of no. keeping the leader of the free world safe? And if something had happened to him, what happens point. to all the aid from the United States? Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that was a big responsibility. That was fascinating. Yeah. I'm a travel by train kind of chick. Yeah. Too. I like them. Yeah, there's travel when I was there. Lots of travel. Oh, travel. What? I'm a travel. I. You guys fly to D.C. I train to D.C. Did you not get it? Okay. Coming up. Wait till you see this. <laughs> Listen to the man who literally dunked on the competition. Mac McClung, fresh off his All-Star Weekend win, joined CNN this morning. Hi. Did you think you could pull that off? Or did you surprise yourself? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I want to give a shout out to Mac McClung. He definitely saved the dunk contest. That was a beautiful performance. I haven't seen the fans excited like that in a long time. He, he, he's actually the only person who has something to lose. But those other guys are in the NBA already. For him to seize that moment, for him to stick as they say in gymnastics, to stick every dunk yeah. was incredible. It really was incredible. From a G-leaguer to the NBA slam dunk contest champ, Mac McClung stole the show at this year's All-Star Weekend Watch. I'm worried about the guy holding the other guy. 
some boy, he gonna go down. Oh, oh, oh my God! Comes McClung. McClung joins the ranks of NBA legends like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, and Vince Carter, scoring a perfect 53 times during the NBA All-Star Slam Dunk Contest Saturday night. I got a chance to talk with him a little earlier. It was amazing. We all love to see a story like that. What is it like for you and to hear like Shaq and Chuck and everyone praising you like that? Man, it's it's really been a blur. I mean, it's a blessing. Uh, you know, I was I was telling everybody being from a small town and uh, just it's been a great experience and just feel really blessed and grateful. Did you think you could pull that off or did you surprise yourself? Well, I've practiced the dunks. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing was really just getting the first dunk in. And once that one went down, it gave me a lot of confidence. And the crowd was was great and, and made me feel a lot of confidence. It's so that crowd is electric. I've been there for past dunk contests and it's it's electric, right? Just the feeling is everything. Um, as you know, LeBron James became the NBA's all time leading scorer just a few weeks ago. And our our friend and colleague Andy Scholes asked him about you. Listen to what LeBron said. He's uh, he solidified himself as one of the probably one of the greatest slam dunk competitors um, uh, that we've had in, in the history of the game. What do you think about that? Uh, that's that's surreal. I mean, LeBron is definitely someone who inspires me um, on the daily and. Uh, someone I was around for just a little bit when I had my, my stint with the Lakers and got to see how hard he worked. And he was just a really big inspiration to me. So hmm. hearing that um, is really nice. You know, the, the Washington Post writes this about you, Mac. They write, um, getting people to see you as a basketball player and not a viral sensation has been one of the one of the toughest parts of your journey. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit, because we see all the, you know, highlights here. But your goal, as you told Andy, has been, you know, play in the NBA, like really play. Yeah, I mean, that's still my goal this day. I, um, you know, I'm still working to that every day. And, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm playing well. Our team is playing well. And I'm just going to stay the course, not really worry about how people view me. You know, you can't really control what other people think. And it doesn't it doesn't really bother me that much, to be uh, to be honest with you. So I'm just I'm just steady working and enjoying the process. So just before the, the dunk contest, you signed with the Sixers. So we saw you in a Sixers jersey there. What, what do you hope is next for your basketball journey? You've got many, many years ahead of you. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope to, I hope to find a role um, in the NBA, and I hope to help a team win a championship. That's my ultimate dream, and uh, I, like I was saying, I'm going to continue to work. I really believe in myself, and you know, I'm going to continue to prepare for that moment, and I'll be ready when it happens. Yeah. Well, look, Mac, it was awesome for us to see, for us to witness, and I'm so happy for you. Congrats, and we'll be watching as you build that career. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. This war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power, but there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire.
That was a big moment for the this, Look, we're moving into election season. The biggest pulpit is the bully pulpit, regardless of who enters this race, and the president has it, and he used it in that moment. On the world stage. On the world stage. On a very big week. Uh, good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're here. It is 8 a.m. Eastern. Don and I are in New York. Caitlin is anchoring live in Poland. Hey, Caitlin. <clears throat> Yeah, here in Poland, it is the final day of President Biden's momentous trip. This hour, he is set to meet with world leaders from NATO's eastern flank. You can hear the arrivals happening behind us. Allies who fear that they could be Putin's next target, potentially. Yeah, there's a lot going on where Caitlin is, plus more than 65 million Americans on alert. A powerful coast-to-coast -coast winter storm unleashing blizzards, ice, and heavy snow. We'll have the latest forecast, plus this for you. You think this transforms coffee? Very few people outside of Starbucks have tasted it. No consumer research whatsoever. Nothing. He revolutionized the coffee industry. Now he's teasing a new twist for your cup of joe. Coming up, our sit-down with Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz as he looks ahead and back on that career. God bless. But we begin this morning with President Biden and the final day of his momentous trip here to Europe as Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine is about to hit its second year. Minutes from now, the president is going to meet with leaders from NATO's eastern flank here in Warsaw. These are the allies who are on Russia's doorstep. Some of them share a border. They have raised concerns that Putin could potentially attack them next. This meeting comes after President Biden delivered a powerful and forceful speech on the world stage last night. He made a solemn vow that Russia will lose and Ukraine will prevail with continued support from the United States and the West. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, was there as the president was delivering this speech. You were there a year ago. Uh, but today, the message today is just as important as what he's been saying since Kiev and yesterday as he was meeting with President Duda to these, these leaders as well, because they're just as concerned. Yeah, I think you need to view this trip, and you know this well, that this is not three events or three days in isolation, right? These are all connected from the surprise visit uh, to Kyiv to make very clear that he was standing shoulder to shoulder quite literally with President Zelensky to the broader kind of uh, what are the stakes message uh, yesterday uh, here in Poland. And then this meeting today with the, B the Bucharest Nine leaders is critical because showing up matters. I, I know sometimes it's dismissed or it seems simplistic, but the president being here, being in Ukraine, being uh, in Warsaw, meeting with these B9 leaders, they need to see it. They want to see it. And it underscores that the commitment that the president has given uh, a kind of a verbal acknowledgement toward repeatedly over the course of the last 12 months uh, is both very steadfast and will continue no matter what. What about what he's going home to, though? Because you know, he talked about the U.S. staying behind Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's the quote that he keeps using. There is a real concern at home, though. You covered Capitol Hill with lawmakers who some of the Republicans who say, you know, this should not continue the way that it has for the last year. You know, it's interesting in talking to officials. They're cognizant of it. They see it. They don't believe it's widespread enough to dramatically impact what they want to do. And they also know quietly that they're going to have to go back to Congress for tens of billions of more dollars in the months ahead. I think that's a critical point here. The support is still fairly widespread. Most importantly, the support includes Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, all of the key committee chairs. And that's very important here. However, they're going to need 218 votes in the House to get anything passed. And so I think part of what you're seeing from the president, this is a, a, a trip that has multiple audiences, whether it's President Putin, whether it's the European leaders, uh, particularly those on the eastern flank, whether it's the Ukrainian people. It's also the American people, because they believe that the American public is still largely behind this effort, understands the stakes, uh, and that will drive where lawmakers go. And what they are most concerned about is that the kind of small group that has been very vocal, particularly on social media, about their disdain for the assistance to Ukraine up to this yeah. point, starts to grow. They don't think it has yet, but they're aware that it's a possibility, and that's why moments like this are critical.
Yeah, that audience there last night is just as important as the audience at home. Yeah. It is notable, you know, House Foreign Affairs Chairman Mike McCall was in Ukraine meeting right. with Zelensky right after President Biden. Yeah, I think it's important to note that the people that are opposed to Ukraine aid or that have been very kind of visceral in their response to it uh, are not a majority in the Congress. They do not control the Appropriations Committee. They do yeah. not control the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, but they have a voice and they certainly have grassroots support. And so while you shouldn't give all the attention to 15 people who'd like to tweet, uh, <laughs> you do have to pay attention to it because they now hold the majority in one House of Congress. Uh, and they certainly have proven they have leverage uh, even if they're in small numbers. And, and so to your point, Mike McCall, Republican, House Republican chairman, steadfast, wants President Biden to go further. He's more representative where Republicans are than perhaps Marjorie Taylor Greene, but Marjorie Taylor Greene has a lot of power in that conference and it has to be acknowledged and paid attention to. Yeah, a really important backdrop to all of this, Phil. Great reporting. Thank you for joining us on set this you, morning. Pal. Nice to see you as well. Don Poppy, obviously we'll be watching to see what President Biden's message is for these leaders today. They're listening very closely as well because they want to know that the United States is behind them, behind them firmly. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Caitlin, thank you. For anchoring from there the past few days, a huge moment for the president, for the world uh, to see that. Caitlin will be back here. She's hopping on a plane. Now to weather. Blizzards warning, blizzard warnings, I should say, from the Dakotas to Minnesota. More than 65 million people under these winter alerts coast to coast this morning. Freezing temperatures across Utah. Some areas expecting two to three feet of snow. And look at this, a really close call for a Wyoming state trooper narrowly escaping a runway semi-truck that just jumped the meridian. Minnesota's governor is declaring a state of emergency. They're activating the National Guard to rescue stranded motorists. That's where we find our very own Adrian Broadus. You know, my friends at home are saying school's already canceled and they're preparing for a lot. Yeah, Poppy, your friends, those Minnesotans, they like a lot of snow and some schools already have it figured out. Just no in-person learning. Some schools said Class is not canceled. The students are still having class online today, and that's because of this big winter storm that is in the path of Minnesota and, quite frankly, across the Midwest. Look, if you don't have to go outside, stay home. If you have a wonderful boss who will allow you to work from home, stay home. It's what the governor is saying. And if you don't believe me, just look at your phone if you have an iPhone or go to the website of the National Weather Service. This is how the National Weather Service is describing this storm. Historic winter storm will likely lead to impossible travel by Wednesday night and early Thursday morning. Yeah, snow, it's a snow lover's dream come true after we get on the other side of the danger here. But if you don't have to be out in this stuff, don't. Minnesota is prepared to handle all of the snow. There are more than 800 snow plows across the state and at least 1,600 drivers here in Minnesota. Poppy, all right, I hope Adrian. your friends and family here are safe. Okay, thanks for braving it with your crew for everyone. Adrian, we'll get back to you soon. All right. So how long are things looking? How are things looking in uh, other parts of the country? Chad Myers, our meteorologist, joins us now. 65 million people under winter alerts. What is the latest, sir? Don, there is a winter storm warning for the mountains above L.A. L.A. County, Ventura County's winter storm warning there, and it stretches all the way to Maine. This is a monster storm, 3,000 miles long, if you travel the highways, a little shorter if the crow flies. But significant impacts across the Dakotas into Minnesota, Wisconsin, 
and it's an ice event that I'm really worried about here. An ice storm from just north of Chicago to Detroit may bring down thousands of power lines here. It's raining right now and 31 degrees in Toledo. That's not a good combination. There will be areas here with an inch of ice accumulation on those branches. Now I know the snow is the story, but to me, the ice storm is as big of a story. You know, 12, 14 inches of snow, shovel it. You get a quarter of inch of ice on the ground, you're going down, you're gonna fall, you're gonna be traveling here and skating rinks across parts of this area for today and for tonight. By Thursday, it's all gone. It moves into Maine and even just north of Boston. But for now, this is a story to take very, very seriously, Don. All right, and we do. Thank you very much, and everyone at home should heed Chad's advice. Uh, straight ahead, we're going to hear the calls from an Alabama lawmaker for a, quote, national gun of the United States. Also, the CEO of Norfolk Southern, that big train company at the center of the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, is now defending its response. Listen. Norfolk Southern is committed to the community and citizens of East Palestine. We're going to be here today, but we're going to be here tomorrow. We're going to be here a year from now, and we're going to be here five years from now. Here's to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. I don't know. Yeah. The Ohio governors, uh, Mike, Ohio governor, I should say, Mike DeWine, and the EPA administrator, Michael Regan, that is him drinking the water in East Palestine, Ohio, yesterday in an effort to try to assure the people there that it is safe to drink after that train derailment released toxic chemicals. Meantime, Norfolk Southern's chief executive is defending his company against backlash from residents reporting health concerns such as headaches and nausea. Our Miguel Marquez is live again this hour in East Palestine with more. That question, Miguel, is do people trust, do they have trust that it is safe? That, that, that is the bottom line for all of this. When and how will they get people to trust that the water is safe, that the air is fine to breathe? And, and, you know, this has gone on for so long that people are right to some degree to be concerned. But I want to show you sort of what's happening. This is one creek in the middle of East Palestine right now. We've been here for a few hours now. And just in the time we've, we've been here, you can see off in the distance, just be in front of that other bridge, they've added more barriers and, and more uh, devices that stir up the water. So those barriers are, are the, the water gets stirred up, those barriers sort of capture whatever toxins may be in the water and they absorb it and they have this all up and down these creeks. This is a creek that is contaminated and they are trying to do everything they can to stop it. People are concerned here because there was that there was the derailment. Many, many cars uh, were derailed. Lots of chemicals. They weren't sure what was in it. Then there was a, a, a controlled burn of one of the cars that sent an enormous plume of smoke, not just here over the city, but across into Pennsylvania, over farmland. It's a very beautiful area in this area, and people uh, do a lot of farming here, so there's great concern there. Uh, and then they found out that there were even more toxic chemicals that they didn't know were on the train after that. Uh, the CEO of Norfolk Southern finally started to come out and respond to some of those accusations. The control burn and control release was the safest course of action for the citizens of East Palestine. Every single decision that has been made so far has been based on the safety of the citizens of East Palestine. We're going to help the residents of this community recover and we're going to invest in the long-term health of this community and we're going to make Norfolk Southern a safer railroad.
So the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency has now signed an order saying that Norfolk Southern must pay for the cleanup here, that, that the Norfolk Southern must come up with a plan that the EPA and Ohio and Pennsylvania have to sign off on, and Norfolk Southern must from now on attend uh, public hearings so that they can begin to restore that trust. Poppy? Uh, Miguel, I'll take you because I have a question for you. Uh, listen, you've got the, the, the folks there saying the water's safe to drink. They're drinking this water. But the big question is the people who actually live there, the citizens, are they buying it? Are they drinking the water? They think it's safe? I a lot of, look, we had breakfast here this morning. They gave us bottled water. I think everybody out of an abundance of caution because they see this in their own backyard. I mean, this is the middle of town. We are, we are 50 feet away from the main street here because you have contaminated creeks, two contaminated creeks right here that they know are contaminated right here in town. I think everybody out of an abundance of caution are, are, are not going to drink the water and not feel secure for, for quite some time, weeks, months, perhaps years. Back to you guys. Uh, Don asked the question, and it's very telling that they gave you bottled water this morning at breakfast. Miguel, thanks for your great reporting. Sure. Um, tonight, everyone should tune in to CNN 9 p.m. Eastern for a CNN town hall on this toxic train disaster. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine will be there along with concerned residents. Don. You're right. They're giving a bottled water, so that's interesting. Here's where we are right now. Okay, pay attention to this. An Alabama congressman has introduced legislation to name the AR-15 style rifle the, quote, national gun of the United States. Congressman Barry Moore unveiled his proposal bill at an Alabama gun shop on Tuesday. Watch. The Second Amendment is an American, is as American a right as freedom of speech, our religion, or even the press. Father, we need to send a message to the American public that weakening the Second Amendment will likely increase that other rights will be taken as well. So Moore's bill, proposed by, co-sponsored by, I should say, Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde. Georgia Representative Andrew Clyde. Also, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and embattled New York Congressman George Santos. The Firearm Industry Trade Association describing the semi-automatic AR-15 as a modern sporting rifle used by hunters, competitors, millions of Americans seeking home defense guns. But time and time again, the AR-15 style rifle has proven to be the weapon of choice for gunmen carrying out some of the deadliest mass shootings in the history of this country. From school shootings in Uvalde, Texas, Parkland, Florida, and Newtown, Connecticut, to fatal rampages at movie theaters, supermarkets, and houses of worship. So, in some ways, it is a gun that shaped this nation. Maybe not how Congressman Moore intense. Yeah. Wow. Very telling, Don. Thank you. Coming up next, more of our interview with Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. We went with him to Italy and Canarsie, Brooklyn, to discuss his journey and his last big bet at the helm of the company. You are creating a world of lawsuits. Lawsuits will be nonstop. Uh, this is important coming out of the Supreme Court, okay? That was Supreme Court justices talking about a blockbuster case that could change the future of the Internet. At the center of a debate, of this debate, is a federal law known as Section 230. It currently shields Internet companies from liability over content that is posted by third parties. The justices will, for the first time, consider the scope of the law in the Gonzalez versus Google case. 
It was brought by the family of Nohemi Gonzalez, the only American killed in the 2015 Paris terror attacks. The lawsuit argues that algorithms on YouTube, which is owned by Google, promoted terrorist content online, which then aided and abetted ISIS. But lawyers for Google say that the company is not responsible because of Section 230. Yeah, it's yeah. really significant. Um, CNN media analyst, Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher is with us. This is so important for the future of the Internet. And I, I mean, listening to oral arguments, you've got Justice Alito saying, I'm completely confused by whatever argument you're making. That was to the lawyer opposing Google. Explain what happened and why this matters. Yeah, so in the brief, the plaintiff didn't mention small things like whether or not a thumbnail institutes being a publisher of content. But when it came to the courtroom, that type of argument was stuff that he used at length. And so I think that Google's lawyers and the justices were pretty confused about the argument he was trying to make here. But let's zoom out a little bit, Poppy, for the viewers of CNN. Why this matters is that for the past three decades, we've used the Internet and we've been able to upload whatever we want. If I want to put up a picture of a health condition I have to see if other people have it, if I want to upload comments on Yelp so that I can warn people from a bad restaurant, all of that stuff's been fair game. If you were to change this law, suddenly all of these tech platforms like Google, like Meta, like Yelp, they would be held liable for content that I would post. And because of that, they would be unlikely to let me post at all. And so the question then becomes, should we change this law to make these companies held liable? I think yesterday's case and oral arguments were really important because it seems to me like it's not looking like the Supreme Court is going to touch this. If anything, this will get punted to Congress. Well, it's interesting because you made the observation earlier to hear, I mean, both sides sort of look like they were in agreement yes, on this. Yes, yeah. the most liberal justices and the most and conservative. The most conservative. Yeah. So this, this is, uh, it has gone unchallenged, this 230 uh, un, until now. And what do you think the chances are? You're an observer uh, of this. What do you think the chances are that something will be done? You said it looks like it's going to be punted back down, for sure, but is that for sure? Because if they're in agreement, maybe they'll take it on and, mm. and do something about it. No, I don't think that the Supreme Court's going to handle this, Don, because the Supreme Court is responsible for interpreting vague laws. This is not a vague law. I think the challenge becomes, do we change the law? And that becomes a responsibility of Congress to meet the demands of the 21st century. Justice Kagan said something yesterday, which was important. We did not have algorithms when we wrote this law. Now we do. So do we now need to revisit this law, which passed over 25 years ago, to account for that? And that kind of gets to the point, by the way, that the plan was making. They weren't saying that the fact that this was published is the problem. They were saying the fact that the algorithms used by Google amplified it, and that was the problem. Now, to your point, do I think that Congress is going to actually challenge this? Well, the problem is they're really divided right now. Conservatives have long focused on censorship. Democrats have long focused on misinformation. And I think it's hard for them to really fundamentally go back and change a law like this if they're not in agreement on that. But, but, uh, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, who originally were behind writing the law in 96, are on the same page still and seem to be saying, you know, it's still working the way we intended it to work. 
It is. And so that brings you to a third possibility, which is do we just introduce new legislation that requires these tech platforms to be more transparent about how their algorithms work? And then potentially, if that's the case, we could you know, push them towards adjusting them in cases like this, where there's things like terrorist conspiracies that are being promoted. I think that's probably the most likely outcome, Poppy. But again, we have such a divided Congress right now, we can barely get budgets passed. Can we get a new internet law passed? I'm not quite so sure. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, right. thanks. Yeah. Sarah Fisher, really appreciate uh, you with this. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, so here's the breaking news right here on CNN. At least 10 Palestinians, including two Islamic Jihad commanders, killed in a major IDF operation in the West Bank. And that is Israeli defense forces there, an Israeli defense force operation in the West Bank. The daylight operation left more than 100 people injured. Israel Army Radio is reporting that the raid was to stop an imminent attack. IDF raids into the West Bank usually occur overnight. The last time the military concluded a daylight operation, they said that it was because of an immediate threat. CNN is going to continue to update you on what we know as the day goes on. But this breaking news is coming out of the West Bank. Mm -hmm. At least 10 Palestinians, including two Islamic Jihad commanders, killed Wednesday in a major IDF operation in the West Bank. At least 100 more injured will continue yeah. to And as you said, rare to happen in the daylight like this. And also, we have to say, happening as the president is on the world That's stage, right. yep. visiting Ukraine, returning, but this is all happening. There we see him, he's in Warsaw, Poland today, but returning to the United States soon. And it is his last day in Warsaw. In just moments, he will meet with the so-called Bucharest Nine. Those are the countries that border Russia. We'll take you there when it happens. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. run Starbucks three times. Yes. You've left Starbucks three times. Yeah. Is this the final time full stop? Yeah. You're ready to let go? I'm ready to let go. I'm ready for the next chapter of my life. I don't know what that's going to be. Yeah. But I'm not coming back to Starbucks. That is outgoing Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz saying this time he is leaving for good, but not before taking one more big swing. He wants to go out like he came in revolutionizing the coffee industry. So I traveled with him to two places that have had a significant impact on his life. The fields of Italy, where his newest innovation originated, and the public housing in Canarsie, Brooklyn, where he grew up. Is this how you think people will start their day? The proof is in the cup, and once they sample it, I think they'll order. Okay. Cheers. <laughs> Howard Schultz wants to end his 40-year career where his vision for Starbucks was born. It's not overpowering. Not in Seattle, but in Italy. If somebody took a blood test of me, yes. I think my blood's coming out gold. I've had so much olive oil. Olive oil in your coffee. A spoonful per cup, sometimes bubbling to the top. An infusion of what Italians call liquid gold, sourced from centuries-old olive trees in southwestern Sicily. Schultz says he hasn't been this excited since 1983, when he brought Italy's coffee culture to America. Love Starbucks. We've had it three times today. He's the man who made Starbucks ubiquitous. I was a barista before there was a barista. While insisting his company was about much more than coffee. Most things, especially in America, that have gotten big have not stayed good or true, 
or authentic. And speaking out like few public company CEOs before him. Guns should not be part of the Starbucks experience. And we want to embrace diversity. And I honestly don't see color now. Why is this your last move? Well, I didn't plan this in my career at Starbucks in the same place that I started in a completely different way. Coffee's been around for thousands of years. No one's ever thought of mixing the two except me. And so we took an espresso machine, took a French press, and started playing around. And I think to our surprise, to say the least, the taste profile started producing this luscious, velvety flavor that lingers in your mouth, we've discovered something quite extraordinary. You think this transforms coffee? I know it'll transform the coffee industry. A very few people outside of Starbucks have tasted it. No consumer research whatsoever, nothing. Isn't that a risk? I don't think so. I mean, I just think everything we've ever done that has succeeded at Starbucks mm -hmm is proven in the cup. You're sure this won't go the way of sparkling coffee? No, no, no. The future of, of the company today is based on customization. So people are going to add a tablespoon of Pertana extra virgin olive oil into their drink, I'm sure of it. Part of that customization has meant more work for baristas. Yes, it has. Are you conscious of that, that this might add to the to that concern right now already? I, I am conscious of it, and so the way we've designed the execution of the tablespoon of olive oil is no added work for our people. Those people, Starbucks partners, are squarely in the spotlight with a very public labor dispute between the company and Starbucks Workers United. Embracing the status quo is a death sentence. You, you must push for self-renewal and reinvention, like Oliato like the olive oil and the coffee. But there's a balance that has to be, and it's fragile, that has to be maintained between pushing for self-renewal and reinvention and maintaining the core values of the company. And that's, that is where companies, and that's where Starbucks in the past has lost its way, where it has tilted too much uh, to a place where it's been too financially oriented, too financially skewed, too focused on the stock price. And the, the only way forward for Starbucks is to follow the hearts and minds of our people. How do you know you're not too focused on profits right now? Well, my focus 100% of the time is on two things. The making our people proud and exceeding the expectations of our customers. And two critics who would say, why are you here in Sicily focusing on this now? Why aren't you at the negotiating table with those unions? We want to and are willing to enter into bargaining, but we want to do it face to face. That's what we think is the right thing to do. We went with Schultz to revisit a very different part of his life, the public housing where he grew up in Canarsie, Brooklyn. I must say it's very, it's almost surreal to kind of be here all these years later and just be this close to where I grew up. Uh, and you can kind of feel the claustrophobic feeling of these walls. Behind those walls, Schultz remembers abuse by his father, who had one bad job after another, leading to low self-esteem, anger, and beatings. One down is 7G, the middle window. And this is a place that I came to kind of get away from the anger, the dysfunction, the yelling. And, and this is where this was a safe place for me. And this is where I used to hide as a young boy, literally hide. So standing here now feels like uh, it's, Yeah, I can almost cry, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can almost cry. 
Really? Yeah. Yeah. We should probably go. So. But his mother. I think she gave me self-esteem. She had such a optimistic view of America and the American dream. I just wonder, though, if you think that you would have become what you became no. without this. No, I think that's a very good question. Uh, there's no way I would have had the drive or the ambition and the insecurity that comes with living in a place like this. You were insecure. No doubt. I'm 69 years old and I'm, I'm still this kid from the projects. I never would have had the drive to do what I've done and have the success I've enjoyed if I didn't come from this place. And I think the kind of company I tried to build all these years with a set of values and guiding principles and shared success, giving people education, all the things I've tried to do is based on the fact that trying to create a kind of company that my father never got a chance to work for. In April, Schultz will step down as CEO for the third time, and he says the final time. What has been most meaningful to you in these 70 years? You know, it's hard to, to walk in someone else's shoes, uh, but you got to do that a little bit. Those formative years in Brooklyn, and specifically in the projects, shaped my life. And the, the most truthful revelation about your question is the shame, the vulnerability, and the insecurity has never left me. With 36,000 stores in 80 countries, Starbucks has never been bigger. Well, success is something you wear as armor and you project it. And certainly I do that in the role and responsibility I have and I carry with me the platform of Starbucks but inside there's still that question are you enough and you never really quite feel enough and the hardest part of leading and being a CEO of a public company is you got to project confidence and you got to get people to believe and there's always self-doubt and so how do you parcel that self-doubt with projecting confidence and a vision for the future. That's, that's real. That's a, that is the most truthful thing I can tell you. At 69, yeah. still asking the question, am I enough? For that first For Schultz, time, you could say the coffee has been the easier part of the journey. Tasting, the road ahead is said, still brewing. We're all imperfect. We're all human. We're hard on ourselves. And uh, I think you got to look at the whole picture. And I'm still a work in progress. It was fascinating to go yeah. on that journey with him as he's leading this company in a time that's going to really determine the future of it, especially with yeah. uh, what's going on with the unions and with this next big bet that, that he made. They can use the coffee. Huh? They can use the coffee in Warsaw because it's been a big trip for a the big president trip. and all yeah, involved. We want to get your pictures now. President Biden arriving at the presidential palace uh, just moments ago in Warsaw to meet with the leaders of the Bucharest Nine. He's going to be meeting with them. The leaders of Poland, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania and Slovakia. Yeah. And, and a few of them will speak. We'll hear first from President Duda of Poland, then the Slovakian president, the Romanian president then from Biden. So, of course, we'll carry that for you live. They're also going to be joined by the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. He'll join us actually in the program tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. All right.
Okay. So we'll c continue to follow these pictures coming out of Warsaw, Poland, as well, well as some other news. Uh, Harry is here. <laughs> we'll explain next. Okay, there you go. Uh, this happens just mo happened just moments ago in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, members of the Bucharest Nine plus the President of the United States there. Uh, they call it a family photograph. This is just before the meeting to be held in just moments. Let's show you the map where all these leaders are from, because the reason they're called the, the Bucharest Nine is about their proximity to Russia and their border. concern and their threat, uh, uh, the threat concern they have from Russia, given the incursion and the attacks on Ukraine and what that could mean for their nations. We're going to hear from President Biden speaking with them in a little bit. But first, we'll hear from the Polish president, Duda. We'll hear from the Slovakian president, the Romanian president, then Biden and the head of NATO is there, too. Yeah. As I've said, this is a big trip for the president. Mm -hmm. And we're speaking a lot about people who may be challenging the president on the Republican side. But I think what folks have to remember, just as when Trump was president, the biggest and the best pulpit is the bully pulpit. And that is holding the mic as a president of the United States. That is hard to fight against in this yeah. upcoming season. And the president using it diplomatically in this moment. On the world stage, on such a significant week, of course, Friday marks one year yeah. from the Russian invasion. It's um, hard to believe that, standing there, reporting. It happened on my show. It's hard to believe it's been a year. The invasion happened Matthew, on your show. With Matthew Chance. The first, not yeah, the, the invasion, the, the but the, the first um, rockets to fly. Right happened that night that night and with Matthew Chan standing on that balcony mm. putting on his uh, gear his vest and his helmet there and we've just sort of went for hours and you went and yeah. had coverage and now a year later and yeah, it is still, still going on okay we're going to keep a very close eye on what's happening there uh, meanwhile we've all been here watch this hello Peter what's happening um I'm gonna need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow so if you could be here around nine, that would be great. Oh, oh, and I almost forgot. Uh, I'm also going to need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday, too. That is one of my fav very <laughs> favorite movies. <laughs> Um, if you love office space like we clearly do, you know the feeling your boss asking you to pick up extra days at work. But what if they did the exact opposite and asked mm. you to work fewer days? That is apparently catching on in the United Kingdom. Is that a good sign? We don't need you to come in. And <laughs> I wouldn't like that sign. We're talking about four-day work. That's happened in the U.K. At four-day, the largest four-day work week trial ever, right? Our senior data reporter, Harry Inton, is here with more on this morning's numbers. So what is this all about? Yeah. I, first of all, let me just say I love office space. Uh, this morning's number is 92% because companies in the U.K. four-day work week trial, after the trial concluded, 92% are continuing with the four-day work week. So it was quite successful and let's first, we'll break it down by employers, then employ, or employees, then employers, then employees. How, how companies did on a four-day work week? Okay, employers rated the trial on average an 8.3 out of 10. Company revenue compared to last year up 35%. So employers seem to like it. What about employees? How did employees feel about a four-day work week? Among those resp who responded, stress, down, fatigue, down, burnout, down, insomnia, down, physical health, up, there you go, and mental health, up here, that was also up. To jump. There you go. <laughs> ah. 
You getting too old for that? Yes, I am. We're all young enough at heart, so I wouldn't worry too much. Don't burn yourself out. That's the purpose of a four-day work week, is so that you don't burn yourself out. I'm all for this. Are you for this? Uh, what, for a four-day yeah. work week? Um, I, don't, I like working. I love what I do, but I, I can see why people love it. I actually, look, I, it goes against this. I like going into the office. I think people should I do, in. too. That's just me. I do a six-day work week, so if I, you if, do. I, if I would dial back, it would be a five-day work week. I think the question, though, is whether or not this would actually work in the United States, right? Because we're talking about a U.K. study. Continue to get your exercise, oh, that's Don. my back. I'm trying to stretch it out. So the good it. news is that a smaller study in the U.S. was similarly positive. <clears throat> the eighth news was that the trial companies tended to be very white, very white-collar and small. But do American workers want it? 70% support it. So, Don, you're in the minority on this. I yeah. am in the minority. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, but we'll right. see. I think I, Caitlin feels the same way, though. She likes working. She thinks people should come and people <laughs> want to come to the office. I'm good with four. You guys can do Fridays. We'll, <laughs> com- we'll combine. We'll do Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. I, I think with this shift, Mondays. Better to have Mondays Yeah, off. that's true. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah, yes. Yes, you can, Annie. Yeah, I know, but then Tuesday my just producer becomes Monday, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> you right. have a case Thank of that Tuesday. Thank you, <laughs> Harry, Thank you very much. Very much. Uh, let's live go pictures, back yeah. overseas. These are live pictures of President Biden meeting with the Bucharest Nine leaders in Warsaw, Poland. The president's set to speak very soon. We're going to carry it for you live here on CNN. Well, clearly, this is the morning moment right now. The president of the United States speaking in Warsaw, Poland, the Bucharest Nine leaders. Let's listen in. uh, The irony is that uh, one of the last conversations I had with uh, our friend in Russia was uh, I said, you keep asking for the findalization of NATO, you're going to get the NATOization of Finland. Well, it happened. Not only are we as strong as we are, we're stronger. And uh, I say to my fellow presidents that uh, I'm honored to be with you here and uh, so many strong NATO allies. And uh, the Secretary General, who I think has done an incredible job, an incredible job for a long time. I rely on his judgment a great deal. You know, the B-9 was founded in 2015 after Russia attempted annexation of Crimea. And today, as we approach the uh, one-year anniversary of Russia's further invasion, it's even more important that we continue to stand together. And I think this is proof of this, how strongly we feel. That's why I wanted to meet all of you in person here today as NATO's eastern flank You're in the front lines of our collective defense, and you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict, not just for Ukraine, but for the freedom of democracies throughout Europe and around the world. You know, when um, that's what President Zelensky and I spoke about when I was in Kyiv two days ago, and uh, the leaders around this table have repeatedly stepped up to reaffirm our shared commitment to all these values. We provided critical security assistance to Ukraine and critical support to literally millions of refugees. We've helped ensure Ukrainians can access basic services, and together we'll continue our enduring support for Ukraine as they defend their freedom. Over the past year, 
with your countries, with countries around this table, providing collective leadership, we've also strengthened NATO, a commitment of the United States to NATO. I've said it to you many times. I'll say it again. is absolutely clear. Article 5 is a sacred commitment the United States has made. We will defend literally every inch of NATO, every inch of NATO. And uh, it's this an important moment. I look forward to the discussion and the next steps we can take together and to keep our alliance strong and to further deter aggression. Because what literally is at stake is not just Ukraine, it's freedom. The idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country after war, since World War II, nothing like that has happened. Things have changed radically. We have to, we have to make sure we change them back. So thank you all very much for allowing me to be with you, and I look forward to our private discussions. Thank you very much, Mr. President. President Biden, uh, the last speaker there in Warsaw, Poland, as he is speaking with the uh, Bucharest Nine. Yeah. Not going so far as to say that they'll invoke Article 5 of NATO, which is an attack on one is attack on all, but he's saying they will do everything they can to defend the Bucharest Nine and to defend the borders and to defend what NATO stands yeah. for. Yeah, and as you've been saying all morning, a huge moment for this president on the world stage in a very significant week as we get close to one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Our colleagues, uh, Jim Chudo, Kristen Fisher, pick Kristen it up. Fisher and Jim Chudo right now. Yeah, they pick it up here. Have a great day, everyone. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.